Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe. And we'll be opening our Bibles to Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 to 18, as we listen to a message entitled, Lift Up Your Eyes and Look. Several years ago, I was following my friend. He was riding a motorcycle through the streets of Burnaby, which if you don't know it, it's a part of Greater Vancouver. A car had come in between us, and I knew that we had to make a left-hand turn on a very busy street. Now, if you don't know it, left-hand turns on busy streets are the leading cause of motorcycle fatalities. I watched my friend put on his left turn signal light, and then I saw his brake light come on as he was slowing down to a stop and allowing vehicles to clear the intersection where he was turning. And then to my amazement, I watched the car following in behind him, carrying on at the same speed, rapidly making up the distance between him and the motorcycle ahead. At the very last minute, when the car was almost on top of the motorcycle, the car suddenly put on his brakes in an emergency, narrowly avoiding crashing into a stopped and signaling motorcycle ahead. You know, I instantly knew the problem. The motorist in the car had allowed his eyes to fall, only watching the road immediately ahead. If only he would lift up his eyes and look. See, lifting up one's eyes is a metaphor for seeing beyond the immediate. Imagine all you see in life are the things that are directly in front of you. Your marriage problems, the bills that are due, the demands of your job coming up this week, the baseball tournament you're taking your kids to in this weekend, the political frustrations in your country. Well, you get the idea. A great many people never get their eyes up and look beyond the immediate and consequently are surprised by disaster or are frustrated by unforeseen, unplanned events. Four times in the book of Isaiah, God calls his people to lift up their eyes. The first time is found in Isaiah 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. See, here's the call to get one's eyes off of the idols that Israel was so fond of and examine the grandeur of the heavens and ask whether those idols Israel was presently worshiping were responsible for the majesty all around them. The second use of the phrase is found in chapter 49, verse 18. There the phrase invites unbelieving Israel in some future date to observe how God will restore the nation after she has suffered and bring the people of God back to their land from all parts of the earth. Here's what it says. Lift up your eyes and see as they gather and come back to the land, says God. You know, in the future, when God's promises are being fulfilled, don't be ignorant of what's happening. Get your eyes off of the immediate and pay attention to God's promises being fulfilled in front of you. The phrase is used a third time in chapter 51, verse 6. There we read, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Now, I particularly love this passage. Look toward the end of all things, says God. Everything in this earth is going to disappear, but God's salvation will not. It's the only eternal thing that there is. 
get your eyes off of the immediate and consider the end of all things. You know, and finally, the phrase is found in Isaiah 60, verse 4. The passage invites people to see God's great final ingathering of his people when he makes all things new. You know, if I were to put all the uses of this phrase together, I think I can see what God is up to. It really is possible to see what so few others see. Think of it this way. If you live in a large city, the night sky is blinded by the city lights. The brilliance of the stars and their constellation will never fascinate you or fill your imagination simply because you can't see what is there. The same is true of the unseen realm of God's eternal promises. And so twice in Genesis 13, we're introduced to the phrase, lift up your eyes. The first time is in relationship to Lot. Genesis 13 verse 10 says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. You know, as we contemplate Genesis 13 verse 10, we should rightly wonder just how far Lot actually lifted up his eyes. I mean, the more we think about it, we might conclude that he lifted up his eyes far enough to see just a little beyond the immediate. To use my automobile imagery, he went from seeing what was two meters ahead of him to seeing what was five meters ahead of him. Better, but not nearly far enough. When Abram offered his nephew the choice of what he wanted, Lot lifted up his eyes, but not nearly far enough. From Lot's vantage point, he could see the land around the southern end of the Jordan Valley, that it was just the place to settle down and become a very rich man. If only he had lifted up his eyes just a little farther, he would have seen something so very, very different. You see, his uncle Abram's herdsman and Lot's herdsman had been in a dispute. As the two men and their entourage traveled together, they were frequently at odds with each other. There was only so much open land where they would water and feed their flocks, and so a dispute between these two commercial enterprises was inevitable. Now, it might seem that Abram's proposal was the only way of resolving this dispute. Genesis 13, verse 8 and 9 reads, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And at that moment, we are told that Lot lifted up his eyes. Now, it really was possible for Lot to see something completely different. See, God had told Abram that he would make Abram a great nation and that he would give his descendants the entire land of Canaan and that he would use all of his resources as God to bless Abram and that Abram himself would become the pivotal figure of blessing the whole world. Now, given that reality, it really was possible for Lot to lift up his eyes and deeply embrace his uncle's destiny. Had he done so, Lot would have made a very different decision than the one he eventually makes. Lot might well have instructed his herdsmen to submit to Abram's leadership and to allow himself to be grafted into Abram's family line, thus inheriting blessings that clearly flowed from Abram. Instead, Lot lifts up his eyes just a little, and from his vantage point, he sees the fertile land of the South Jordan River. You know, Lot was probably standing on an elevation close to Bethel. From one of the hills there, he would get a, you know, a magnificent view of the Jordan Valley. And he notices a land that seems to be resistant to drought. 
And after all, remember, he's just gotten back from Egypt and he was liking what he was seeing. They never had a famine there because the land was not dependent on rain, but the annual inundation of the Nile. And now he sees that he can have the same thing in the south end of the Jordan River. You know, failure to lift one's eyes high enough can result in unseen consequences that bring great harm. Eventually, what will happen to Lot is that God will rain destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot will lose all that he has. Let me try an illustration. You know, while I was in pastoral ministry, I would occasionally run across those tragic individuals who are addicted to gambling. There really is something about the allure of instant gratification that deeply attaches itself to our flesh. If only I had financial freedom, I wouldn't have to be dependent on my job, the whim of the economy, and the goodwill of my employer. Look, I'm not arguing against financial independence, but I've seen the spiritual devastation in the lives of countless people who want to be freed from praying, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Here's what I've observed as a pastor. I have found that the great temptation for people who are financially independent is to drop out of church. And why is that? You know, because they're on trips and they have cabins and they have options they never had before, and it's all so exciting. Isn't that what they'd worked for? But that's a short-term result. It's the result of not lifting our eyes high enough. The long-term result is that they no longer attend a prayer meeting. They no longer go to a Bible study. They no longer fellowship. They're no longer using their spiritual gifts in service to the Lord and others, and they're no longer connecting with unsaved friends. You know, in their joy of finding endless travel and vacation packages, they become disconnected with what Christ has for them. See, they're not lifting up their eyes nearly far enough. They simply can't imagine a world that's beyond their immediate gaze. And for Lot and all who are like him, the consequences are disturbing. Many of us are well familiar with the words of Deuteronomy 31.6. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. But sometimes our hardships can make God feel far. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, A Story of Lives Made Full. It points to the book of Ruth and relates to how God moved one family from hunger to abundance, from bitterness to celebration. This booklet unravels the powerful and timeless lessons found in the story of Ruth that we can all learn from today. If your heart is in need of a refresh with the sustaining truths of God's faithfulness, then be sure to request your free copy today. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I'm reading Genesis 13, 12, and 13. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Having made his choice, Lot moves into one of the most morally corrosive parts of the ancient world. I can almost imagine Lot already. We're going to see in chapter 19 how self-centered and how sexually depraved the people of that region were. And the morals of that area were going to have a devastating spiritual impact on Lot. 
Lot would end up with a troubled soul, but his wife, it would seem, utterly loved the new morality. His daughters would become disconnected with a godly future, and his descendants would become idolaters. In fact, Peter was to say that his experience in Sodom tormented Lot's soul. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Let me spell out how that happens today, all the time. I first heard it from my parents. John, don't hang around with that crowd. But it isn't just true of little children. It's true of adults as well. Someone will take a job at a company that demands they compromise their faith. At first, they justify it. I mean, the money's good. It's a raise. It's what I've always wanted. And finally, it gives me the financial freedom that my family needs. But slowly, the corporate culture begins to seep into their own souls. And after a while, wickedness really does take root. There are all sorts of office affairs. And what's wrong with a little harmless flirting anyway? And there are some shady business deals, and one thing leads to the next until disaster strikes and they wonder, how did all this happen to me? Or take the young person who decides that his form of entertainment is going to nightclubs and bars, and after all, you can't hide from the world, and besides, I'm just having a little fun. And sometimes I go with other Christians, and we'll keep each other accountable around all this sinful stuff. And after a while, the fellowship of believers in the local church seems bland and lacking in excitement. See, the spearhead of compromise is focusing on personal desires and ignoring moral evil. It's to say, I like it, even though there are some things I suppose that, well, that Christ would not be pleased with. See, what Lot doesn't know is that God is going to rain down burning sulfur on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moving to Sodom was the worst mistake he ever made in his life. It would destroy his family. And today, what used to be a fertile plain is now called the Dead Sea because nothing lives there anymore. It's a permanent witness of the anger of the Lord. And because Lot simply couldn't lift his eyes any higher, he was determining the spiritual fate of those who came after him. Well, you might say, well, how could Lot have known all of that? I'm sure he didn't know it at the time, but I do know that for us, this entire world has already been handed over to condemnation. It's merely awaiting its final date with destiny. And if we don't lift our eyes any higher than what we presently see, our future is going to be like Lot's future. So let's continue to read to the end of Genesis 13. Here, very suddenly, the text drops the description of Lot and takes us back to Abram. I'm reading verses 14 to 18. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. It is instantly apparent that Abram is invited to lift up his eyes ever so much higher than Lot did. Abram is invited to take another pilgrimage, God commanding him to take his second journey through the land. And as he does, he is to reflect on the promises of God. And now, rather than simply telling him that his offspring will be many, God expands on this promise and tells Abram his offspring will be far greater than he has ever imagined. 
And as he travels and visits the promised land, Abram is called upon to reflect that everywhere that he is walking has been promised to him. And so we come to verse 18, when he arrives in Hebron and settles near it in a heavily forested area where the trees are called the Oaks of Mamre. In the next chapter, we will see that he gains some very powerful allies there, mighty men who are willing to protect him and to fight for him. This will be a place of safety. And so in that place, Abram builds a third altar of worship. You'll remember that Abram has built an altar at Bethel, celebration of the fact that this was the first place where God appeared to him in Canaan. Then after that, he built an altar in Shechem, where he celebrated that the pagan gods of that place could not compete with the one true God whom he worshipped. And now he builds his third altar in Hebron. In the time of Abram, Hebron was a major settlement. It was a heavily fortified city, a symbol of strength, a place which symbolized that Canaan would never be conquered by foreign armies. But God has told him to lift up his eyes and see that even the heavily fortified Hebron belonged to Abram and his descendants. The land was his, and Abram, as an act of faith, lifts his eyes to the promises of God and builds an altar and no doubt offers up sacrifices there, bends his knees in worship and proclaims to God that he is certain that none of the promises that God has made to him are going to fail. See, I see an application here. Do you know as a believer in Jesus Christ exactly what it is that he's been promising you? When you come before God in prayer, what are the things that God has called you to lay claim to? Do you know? Are you sure that you're going to heaven when you die? On what basis? Will God listen to your prayer requests? How can you tell? Here's what I think the believer should do. Go through, let's just say, the book of Ephesians, or even all Paul's letters in the New Testament. Take a certain color of a pen and underline every single promise that you can find. Walk through the land. Categorize the promises. Understand what it is that God is giving you. Get off your Facebook page. Get out your Bible. Lift up your eyes and look. Then build an altar of worship. Look again at verse 16. I'll make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Now, this is an appeal to the imagination. I mean, imagine counting dust. I mean, how tiny is that? I guess you'd need a microscope, or at the very least, a magnifying glass. How much dust is there? I mean, I don't know, but I can almost imagine someone beginning to categorize dust, collect it, count it. They would no doubt hire a scientific staff. You'd need government grants to do it. Maybe you would have a huge government department doing it. And still in the end, you wouldn't be able to count the dust of the earth, God says. So shall your offspring be. Have you ever done that with God's promises? For instance, here's a promise found in Ephesians 2, 6-7. Listen to it. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, I wondered if you've ever tried to imagine that promise. Now, if not, might I ask you to lift up your eyes and look. Imagine being seated in heavenly places with Christ. Imagine God for eternal ages showing off his infinite and perfect kindness, all fully directed at you. See, the real problem with so many 
is that we have never lifted up our eyes beyond the immediate. I mean, your, your struggles to raise your kids, and maybe you're fighting with a disease. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe the pressures of your job. Maybe that dream of the, the perfect vacation that one day you're going to have enough and go on that. It's these lower things that your eyes see, and it's these lower things that you meditate on and allow your imagination to consume you. You're like Lot, who cannot see the splendor of God. You've never lifted up your eyes nearly far enough. And in response, God says, lift up your eyes and look. Walk through the land of God's promises and take note of what you see. Heavenly Father, I pray for God's people. Help us, O Lord, not to be so earthly-minded that we are of no heavenly good whatsoever. Rather, Heavenly Father, show us who we are in Christ. Show us what you have prepared for those who love you. And direct our course of events, O Lord God, so that when we make a decision about what we are to do, help us, O Lord God, to make it with our eyes firmly fixed on the reality that soon will be made clear to us. O Heavenly Father, may this be our heritage. In Jesus' name, amen. John, I got to go back to the beginning of the message. Uh, you were talking about motorcycles, and both of us have a have a liking of that and riding motorcycles. But I can remember when I was first starting to ride motorcycles, I, I recognized that going around a corner was very treacherous if all you did was look at what was immediately in front of you. In fact, like you've we've talked about, you know, you would end up correcting and sometimes uh, going off the road completely. And it's only when you learn to lift your eyes and see towards the horizon that things started to flow. Yeah, it's really true. I, I identify with that because the lesson really is when you're going around a corner, look to the end of the corner, not at the immediate in front of you. And it does freak people out at first because they, they don't know that they can navigate the immediate because they're looking long way down the road. And I do think that's a great illustration of what the spiritual life consists of. God has given us great and precious promises. We need to put our eyes on that. And we might say, oh, no, Lord, I can't possibly do that because I got this problem right now. Don't you know I've got this problem? And all of our prayers and all of our energy is completely directed at what's directly in front of us. So many of us can't lift up our eyes. But that's the message that God wants to communicate. Lift up your eyes. Have a look at what I've said. And then the immediate will take care of itself. That's the good news of the gospel. What a great message. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The definition of legacy, something that is passed on. But legacy can mean so much more. Your faith, core values, your character, or the life you lead. Maybe this is news to you, but Back to the Bible Canada partners with Advisors with Purpose to provide expert estate planning at no cost. This is a third-party service, so Back to the Bible Canada is not involved in the planning or how you would steward your legacy. We simply hope to provide access to an opportunity to ensure you leave a legacy that will accurately represent your wishes for future generations and faithful stewardship of all God has entrusted to you. So if you're interested or would like more information, call Advisors with Purpose directly at 
336-3315 and let them know you're a friend of Back to the Bible Canada or visit backtothebible.ca slash legacy.